Good morning. I uh, am very grateful to be here with you. Uh, it's kind of interesting that I was here just two weeks ago, so in some ways this feels like deja vu, but hopefully, as in my case, it feels like one of the best deja vus you can have. It's always good when you get invited back to a place, because uh, it means it means that you are um, uh, doing something right, and I really appreciate uh, the support of this assembly and the support of all of you individually. It means a lot. Um, today, we're going to look at the end of Luke chapter 2. And we're going to begin Luke chapter 3. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter um, 2 verse 40, we will begin with actually uh, verse 41. And if you're keeping notes, uh, the basic summary statement, the title, if you will, of my message today is Jesus at the temple and his way prepared. And uh, let's open in a word of prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in a country where we can, at least still to this point, freely open your word and learn from it and teach from it. For you alone have the words of eternal life. We pray that we would apply these words to our lives, that we would not be the same as when we came in. And Lord, I pray that if there be any souls that do not yet have a personal relationship with the best of masters, Jesus Christ, that today would be the day of their salvation. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So the first point that I want to bring out um, is one about Joseph. Remember, we talked uh, earlier that Joseph was a just man. Joseph being the father of Jesus, earthly father of Jesus. Joseph was a just man. And rather than having this idea that Jesus, having to take care of Jesus, made him just, we talked about how God chose Joseph for this important task because he was just, because he had shown some faithfulness to God. And as we start this portion, we will see that Joseph continued to be faithful to God. And here's what it says. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. Now, if someone could look up a cross-reference in Deuteronomy 16, 1-2. Uh, we'll get into that in just a moment, but first I want to bring out a couple 
points in these first few verses. First of all, it says that Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. This is something that the children of Israel, from the beginning of their founding as a nation, and from the giving of the law by God Jehovah, had been told to do is to keep the Passover. And if you remember, there were a few times in the Old Testament when they forgot about the Passover, when they got away from God, and God drew them back to Himself, and part of the reasserting of their faithfulness was the fact that they were again celebrating the Passover. So, we see that Joseph and Mary were faithful to observe the Passover every year. And when Jesus got to be about 12 years old, he was considered a man. And so as a man, he was included in the number who would go to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it says, When they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. And they perhaps figured he was somewhere in the company, but as I said before, he was considered a man, and so they did not worry about Jesus. Now, of course, he was perfect, so that might have had something to do with the fact that they didn't worry about him either, but they didn't worry about him. And they went a couple days' journey, or went a day's journey, and they saw him among their kinfolk and acquaintance, and when they found him not, they turned back. Jerusalem seeking him and uh, I just think it's very interesting here that they went a day's journey and when they got to the end of that day they realized he wasn't there and then they went back to find him and I wonder Obviously, this was their son, so this is the parent-child relationship. But I also wonder, do we seek Jesus with the desire and the urgency that his earthly parents did? And I also just wanted to look at a little bit more of what Joseph and Mary were doing when they went to the temple. And so if somebody has Deuteronomy 16, 1-2, if they could uh, read that, I would appreciate it. Observe the month of the feast. Keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord thy God brought thee forth out of Egypt by night. Thou shalt therefore sacrifice thy Passover unto the Lord thy God of the flock and the herd in the place which the Lord <coughs> choose to place his name there. Now, there's another important principle that I just want to bring out real quick. And that is 
that they were to celebrate the Passover in the place that God would choose. And I know I've mentioned this before, but we need to be very careful as believers, as followers of Christ, that we don't try to do God's will in our own way. God put up very specific parameters for the Passover feast. And it was to be observed in that way. For a very specific purpose. So that the children of Israel would remember how God brought them out of Egypt. And it is for similar reasons that we celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday morning. Because we celebrate the time when the Lord God brought us out of bondage. And when Jesus became our eternal Passover lamb. And then, as I've already alluded to, but I also just wanted to mention as we finish up this first point. Do you think that God just one day out of the blue decided, hey, Joseph looks like a pretty good guy. Let's give him their assignment of caring for the mother of Jesus and of raising this child with her. We don't read much about Joseph, but the two main things that we read about him show that he was a just man, that he had character. And when God sees that we are faithful in the things that he gives us to do, then he is able to give us more to do. So I'm not sure what Joseph did. But I do know that God counted him worthy of this magnificent assignment. And I'm sure there were times when Joseph was overwhelmed. But he trusted God. I just want to read the story that I found that I think shows an example of what God will do when we are faithful. I know that this is not a guarantee. I don't believe in a prosperity gospel. So please don't misunderstand me. But I believe that if we are doing God's will, then He has the opportunity to bless us in ways that we can't even imagine. So here's the story. One stormy night, an elderly couple entered the lobby of a small hotel and asked for a room. The clerk said they were filled, as were all the hotels in town. But I can't send a fine couple like you out in the rain, he said. Would you be willing to sleep in my room? The couple hesitated, but the clerk insisted. The next morning, when the man paid his bill, he said, you're the kind of man who should be managing the best hotel in the United States. Someday I'll build you one. The clerk smiled politely. A few years later, the clerk received a letter from the elderly man recalling that stormy night and asking him to come to New York. A round-trip ticket was enclosed. When the clerk arrived, his host took him to the corner of 5th Avenue and 34th Street, where stood a magnificent new building. That, explained the man, is the hotel I have built for you to manage. The man was William Waldorf Astor, and the hotel 
was the original Waldorf Astoria. The clerk, the young clerk, George C. Bolt, became its first manager. We don't realize how the assignments that God gives us fit into the grand scheme of our life. And while I may not manage a five-star hotel like the Waldorf Astoria, if I am faithful to what God has called me to do, if you are faithful to what God has called you to do, you never know what God may allow. The Proverbs say, Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before mean men. And mean in that case means common. Think about Joseph. Another Joseph. The Old Testament Joseph. When he was in that pit, thirsty and dirty, he probably had no idea that he would become the second in command of all of Egypt. But God did. And Joseph was in the training ground. And because Joseph responded correctly to God at every point, God was able to use him mightily. And he wants to do the same for you, because if you are His, if you have trusted Him as your Lord and Savior, He has bought you with a price. So I encourage you to glorify God. The second thing, the second point I want to make if you're taking notes, is even as a young man, Jesus was committed to God's will. You know, Jesus said a few times in the Gospels, I am not come to do my own will, but the will of my Father who has sent me. And we see that even as a 12-year-old young man, Jesus had that mindset. Continuing on in Luke 2.46, and it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the doctors both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou dealt with us? Thou thus dealt with us. Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understand, understood not the same which he spoke unto them. <clears throat> And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. And was subject unto this. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God 
and with man. And that's Luke twenty-four or two forty-six to fifty-two. And I have a couple cross references for that as well. But before we get into that, I just want to look at this. His parents were anxious. They were upset. And they were like, how could we lose Jesus? But I I think of this statement by Jesus. How is it that you sought me? Wish ye not that I must be about my father's business? And, and I think about that. If, 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 if your friends were looking for you, if they were wondering where you were, should it be easy for them, especially on Sunday morning? Because they know that you have to be about the business of your father. See, his point is, I'm here to do my father's will. So you shouldn't have had to look all over for me because there's only one place that I would be, and that would be in my father's house. Learning. Preparing. Jesus, even at this point, was beginning to separate himself from his parents because he knew that he had a greater call than just to be the son of a carpenter. That's what so many people did not realize when he started his ministry. They said, is this not the son of Joseph the carpenter who we know and are not his sisters and brothers with us? They didn't understand that he had another father. He had a greater father. Maybe today you're not as blessed as I am and you don't have a father that loves God. Maybe you even have a father that would want you to go against God's standards. What's the answer? The answer is that you have a greater father. A father in heaven who you must bear number one allegiance to. Now I want to be very careful when I say this. Because some people say, well, you know what? That means I'm going to do whatever God tells me to do and my father can just deal with it. But I want to be careful because I know that sometimes even our non-Christian friends and family can see flaws in our lives that we ourselves cannot see. I'm reminded of a story about this guy who became a Christian and shortly after he became a Christian he was on fire for the Lord so he says, I want to be a missionary. And I want to preach the word of God. And his father said, I'm only going to pay for you to go to college if you go 
to college and study a secular vocation. And then if you want to go on to Bible college after that, then you can go to Bible college after that. So he did what his father asked. I'm not sure, but I believe after that his father became a Christian. But regardless whether his father became a Christian or not, I remember that after this all took place, he said, Dad, I realize now why you asked me to do that, because I had pride in my heart that needed to be dealt with. And by submitting to you, God helped me to deal with my pride. So even if an authority figure in your life is not a believer, as much as you can do while still honoring Christ, I encourage you to submit to them. That's why there's passages like in 1 Peter that says the husband who is unbelieving can be won, perhaps, by the faithfulness of the believing wife. We can look at a couple short cross references. Matthew seven twenty eight, John seven fifteen, and John seven forty six. We can just read those in very quick succession. Whoever has them first can go ahead and read those. Seven fifteen. Fifteen. And the Jews marveled, saying, I'll know if this man letters, having never learned. And forty six, seven forty six. Mm-hmm. The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. <clears throat> and uh, you just think about a twelve year old telling his parents I must be about my father's business. And how, how the things that he was doing, even at 12, went above their heads. And yet the miraculous thing is, when you look at the end of this passage we just read, it says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. You know, sometimes as I've grown up with my father, and... I've felt that what he did was wrong or that he showed me a flaw of his humanity. And I said, you know what? I'm sick and tired of that. I don't really have to obey him or I shouldn't have to obey him or honor him because he's he's flawed. Then I remember the end of Luke chapter 2 where the Son of God was submissive to imperfect parents. 
And I remember, and I think that if the Son of God was submissive to imperfect parents, when he had no flaws, surely I, as a likewise flawed individual, can be submissive to my parents. I know sometimes it's hard with the issue of elders, too, because we should, if we aspire to the office of elder, we should seek to live an exemplary life before the believer. But none of us is perfect. We all need the grace of God in our lives. And so, as you pray for this, I know our assembly is praying about this very matter ourselves. I would encourage you to remember, and I need to remember this too, that this assembly, that our assembly, isn't filled with perfect people. But it is filled with people that have been redeemed by a perfect God. I encourage you to, by God's grace and through His power, live lives that show that you are worthy of this calling. I have a ways to go too. You know, there's a question that's a good question to ask. If I knew that I had only 24 hours to live, how would I live my remaining 24 hours? Now I want to read to you what John Wesley's response to that question was because it's convicting to me. A lady once asked John Wesley if he knew that he would die at midnight the next day, how he would spend the intervening time. He replied, Why, madam, just as I intend to spend it now, I would preach this evening at Gloucester and again at five tomorrow morning, and then I would ride to Tewkesbury, preach in the afternoon, and meet the societies in the evening. I would then go to Martin's house, talk and pray with the family as usual, retire myself to my room at 10 o'clock, commend myself to my Heavenly Father, lay down and rest, and wake up in glory. John Wesley wasn't perfect, but he was so confident that he was doing the will of God that he said, I wouldn't change a thing. May we aspire to be able to say that. May we aspire to use our time in such a way that if we were given a timeline, that we wouldn't have to make major changes. I've told you before that over the last couple of years I've become acutely aware that life at its best is very brief. That we're not guaranteed a long life, even if we are believers. My encouragement to you, that you would keep on 
serving the Lord who loved you and who gave himself for you. It's interesting, you know, those passages we just read reflected how Jesus didn't talk like any other man. And you know, they said the same thing about the apostles as they said about Jesus. They said, these men aren't learned, they're fishermen. How can they speak like this? You know what conclusion they drew? They, they drew the conclusion that these men had been with Jesus. And the book of Acts says that they turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Is that the impact you want to have, brothers and sisters? And if you want to have that impact, you must spend time with Him. This is another area that God has been convicting me of. That I have to spend time with Him if I want to be like Him. Because we become like those we hang out with. That's why Paul said, evil company corrupts good manners because it's true. But if evil company corrupts good manners, then godly company will do the opposite. Will build us up. We weren't meant to live this Christian life in solitary. We were meant to have brothers and sisters as iron sharpens iron. So one brother sharpens another. And I need you and you need me because God designed it that way. Because he's the master designer. And he knows exactly what we need. The third point is John preparing the way. Remember we noted a few weeks ago when we were reading in Luke chapter 1 that John was technically preparing the way even in the womb because when Mary the mother of Jesus came to John's house he leaped while he was still in his mother's womb already proclaiming the truth. John chapter 3 verse 1 Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of Aturia and of the region of Trachytus and Lysanus, the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who has warned thee to flee from the wrath of come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For, our, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. It's interesting that the people of Israel would have this thing where they would say that they were Abraham's disciples. Or say that they were Moses' disciples, even though these men were imperfect and flawed individuals, just like they were. We read that Abraham was made righteous not because of his deeds, for he did plenty of deeds that were not righteous. Lying and saying that Sarah was his sister. Taking Hagar as a second wife when God hadn't provided a child fast enough for him and Sarah. But we read that Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him for righteousness. And we come to God the same way today. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's not a maybe. It's a will. It's a guarantee. But just like John here, often we, we start our gospel message with God is love. And yes, he is love. But you notice the way John starts out? He calls them a brood of vipers. Because he's telling them who they are now. And then he's saying, bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. Repent so that you can become righteous. See, I think we've lost that today, largely in our culture. We can talk about God being love all day long, but if we start talking about the evilness of man, People say, well, you're going to scare people away with that. Well, that may be true, but my hope is to scare people out of hell and into heaven. Paul said it this way. He said, knowing the terror of God, we persuade men. The Bible tells me that life without Christ is a life in hell where the worm dieth not, where the fire is not quenched. If hell was not real, 
if there was not a real consequence for sin? Why would the Savior of the world hang naked on a cross? Why would he allow himself to be spit upon and beaten and punched? Why? Why would he allow the sins of the entire world to be poured upon his back? And why would he allow his own father, the one who said over and over again, I'm well pleased in him. Why would he allow things to get to a point where his father would have to turn his back on him? I'll tell you why. Because he loves you. And because he loves me. But that also means we have a choice. John was preparing the way of the Lord. He's saying the Lord can make the crooked ways straight. The Lord can untangle the mess that is your life. He did it for me. And he can do it for you. I urge you that today would be the day that you would allow Christ to take over your life (coughs) and to remake it from the inside out. If you have not already. And if you have, I encourage you as I will be to evaluate your life. That we would aspire to be like John Wesley and say, if I had 24 hours to live, I wouldn't change a thing of what I'm doing. Because I know that I'm honoring Jesus Christ. If we can look at John 1.7 and Romans 10.18 very quickly. And then I have a final quote to finish up today. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. And then Romans 10.18. What I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. So, John comes. He says, I'm not the light, but I'm come to bear witness of the light. And when John's disciples started following Jesus, some of his disciples were like, they're leaving you, they're following this carpenter from Nazareth. And what was John's response? I must decrease and he must increase. John stepped aside because he knew his work was done. We need to be careful that we don't think that we can save people. Sometimes we think that if we use enough twist your arm evangelism, 
we will get people saved. The only thing that saves people is the Spirit of the living God that comes forth from the preaching of His Word. And sometimes it's not preaching in a pulpit. I want to underscore this too. Sometimes the best preaching you can do is with your own life. With your own example. I remember a story that was told about these pastors. They got together and they were discussing Bible translations. One pastor says, I like the King James. It's the best. It's old. It's tried. It's true. Another pastor says, I like the NIV. It's easier to understand. The third pastor says, I like my mom's version best. Because she lived it. Paul said, you are my epistles, known and read of all men. What are people reading when they read your epistles? C.H. Spurgeon said, as we finish up, I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worships, worship shall be in the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. But if I am asked, what is my creed? I reply, it is Jesus Christ. My venerated predecessor, Dr. Gill, has left a theological heritage admirable and excellent in its way. But the legacy to which I would pin and bind myself forever, God helping me, is Jesus Christ, who is the arm and substance of the gospel, who is himself all theology, the incarnation of every precious truth. And that's a quote from Charles Spurgeon's first sermon from the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. When, I, when people look at my life, I want them to see Jesus only. My prayer is that you would have the same goal. There's a song on the radio right now that says, when people pass, even if they don't know my name, is there evidence that I've been changed? When they see me, do they see you? I want to live like that and give it all I have so that everything I say and do points to you. That's become my prayer. And I hope it's yours as well. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once again for the rich treasures which we find in the book of Luke. We thank you for this time and we've been able to be before you, been able to give you glory. We pray that you would continue to do so. We pray that we would live lives, that in everything we say and do, that we would glorify you. 
We pray this in the most humble manner that we can think to do. And we praise Jesus only. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.